how did they determine what constituted a war crime and how do they intend on enforcing their definition of a war crime? The Russian invasion of Ukraine continues, and now investigators from the European Union are aiding Ukrainian prosecutors in collecting evidence that could be used in a potential future war crimes trial against the Kremlin. The mayor of Mariupol, one of the city's hardest hit by Russian forces, told the Associated Press that at least 10,000 civilians have been killed in the siege on his city. President Biden has accused Russian President Vladimir Putin of committing genocide in Ukraine. But whether the United States would be involved in a war crimes trial and whether Vladimir Putin could himself be prosecuted are more complicated questions to answer. The United States has a complicated relationship with the ICC. Neither the U.S. nor Russia are signatories to the Rome Statute, which established the court back in 2002. And the U.S. has long been opposed to allowing the court jurisdiction over citizens of countries that aren't part of the ICC. After the break, we discuss the path forward on war crimes in Ukraine with our panel of legal experts. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To join future conversations, have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us is Alex Whiting. He's the deputy prosecutor of the Kosovo Specialist Prosecutor's Office and a visiting professor of practice at Harvard Law School. He's also a former prosecutor with the International Criminal Court. Alex, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Diane Orentlicker. She's a professor of international law at American University. She was also a deputy war crimes issues a deputy for war crimes issues in the U.S. Department of State from 2009 to 2011. Diane, thanks for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Diane, what is a war crime? Why aren't all losses considered war crimes? Well, there's a fairly extensive body of law uh, called international humanitarian law or the laws of war, which regulates how wars can be conducted. So this body of law doesn't tell us when a law when a war, excuse me, is illegal, but rather it seeks to um, protect civilians. That is the fundamental concern. And civilian structures, things like schools and and, um, churches and that kind of thing, uh, as well as to protect combatants who no longer present a threat to the enemy forces. So it it is meant to um, minimize the damage to innocent people when hostilities break out. So is there a a clear delineation between what is considered a war crime and what is considered just civilian loss of life or destruction of civilian spaces? That's a great question. Uh, Well, it's inevitable in an armed conflict that some civilians are killed. But one of the fundamental principles of international humanitarian law is that you cannot target civilians. So if you intentionally target civilians, that is clearly a violation of international humanitarian. But also, and more relevant to your question, uh, international humanitarian law requires that states um, take very serious measures to avoid disproportionate inadvertent harm to civilians. And who is responsible for that definition? So this is regulated, uh, it was initially um, regulated by what's called customary international law, and then it 
became clarified through a, a number of series, um, excuse me, treaties. The ones that are best known, I think, and often referred to in the media are the Geneva Conventions of 1949, which really updated the laws of war in light of the horrific atrocities committed during World War II. Those have been updated further in some 1977 protocols, um, and, and key war crimes are defined in the statute of the International Criminal Court. So if people are brought uh, before the ICC to face prosecutions for war crimes, um, that court will apply the definitions in its statute. Um, but to anybody who's familiar with the Geneva Conventions, they'll recognize the definitions of war crimes in the Rome statute. It really uh, took its definition from the Geneva Conventions uh, of, of 1949 in particular. Now, Alex, you're a former prosecutor for the ICC and have investigated war crimes in former Yugoslavia. What's the process for investigating war crimes? So the process first is to establish that the crimes occurred. Um, so as Diane said, um, the critical element there is whether they were intentional, whether civilians were intentionally targeted or civilian objects were, were in, intentionally targeted. Um, sometimes that's not hard to establish. So for example, the images that have emerged from Bucha of civilians who, who appear to have been executed in the street, sometimes with their hands bound, not so hard to establish that that was intentional. Sometimes it's harder when it's a missile strike, for example, because it's possible that there was a military target nearby or that it was accidental or based on faulty intelligence. So those are more challenging ones to prove. And then once, once the crimes are established, then the challenge is establishing who is responsible. The former president of Liberia, Charles Taylor, was sentenced for aiding and abetting war crimes in Sierra Leone. David Crane was the founding chief prosecutor of the special court for Sierra Leone, and he spoke with 1A producer Chris Remington about evidence gathering. Most of the things that you're seeing in the Ukraine, as we literally speak, are not evidence. It's just data. That data in the petrobites, uh, almost a tsunami of information, has to be then gleaned and turned into uh, verifiable evidence that you go into court and prove each and every element of the war crimes and crimes against humanity beyond a reasonable doubt. So, Alex, what does that part of the process look like, transforming data into actionable evidence? Well, what it means is that, you know, because these are criminal prosecutions, you have to rely on reliable evidence and you have a high burden of proof. It's a proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And so you, it's not enough to have, you know, horrific images even um, or newspaper accounts. You need to have evidence that is gathered by investigators. So, for example, evidence from witnesses, physical evidence, forensic evidence, video evidence, intercepts. And what I think, or I know the ICC investigators are doing now, as well as the Ukrainian investigators, um, they're going to the scenes of these attacks. They're going to Bucha and to, to, to the other places where um, civilian targets were hit. And they're gathering that information in, in a reliable way. They're, 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 they're talking to witnesses and gathering the physical evidence. And that's the kind of proof you need in a criminal case. 
Diane, neither the United States nor Russia are part of the International Criminal Court. Why has the U.S. refused to sign on since the court's formation in 2002 and and even created laws curtailing what aid the U.S. can provide to the court? That's an excellent question. And it comes, um, Jan, at a moment where I think there's a lot of ferment within the Biden administration about realigning its policy toward the ICC. The basic reason the United States has had reservations about the court is that it has historically taken the position that a court that is based on a treaty, which is the case with the ICC, can't exercise jurisdiction over nationals of states that didn't join the treaty. So the position of the U.S. government has been, we certainly support the right of other states to join the ICC. That's great. They're entitled to do that, but we're also entitled not to be part of it. But that position has always been in tension with very strong U.S. leadership over decades in bringing to justice those who were responsible for Um, terrible atrocities. And if ever there was a compelling case for U.S. support for accountability, it's the atrocities underway in Ukraine. And so the United States is now looking for ways to to, um, advance its fundamental concern, which is to protect American nationals from politically motivated prosecutions. It wants to find a way to reconcile that concern with its very compelling interest in bringing to justice those responsible for just unprecedented crimes in Ukraine. And we'll see what comes out of this um, internal discussion, but one of the possibilities is that the U.S. government comes to um, shift its focus away from this principle that the court can't exercise jurisdiction over citizens of states that haven't joined it, um, which I should say is a principle other states disagree with as a matter of law and and shift instead to a different concept. So I think there's a search underway for a principled way of saying we can support this case without jeopardizing what we consider our national interests. And one um, possibility in that regard is to focus on the the principle that the ICC should not take up cases against citizens of countries that have a well-functioning judiciary. And we've seen hints of um, that kind of approach in recent days um, coming from not only officials of the Biden administration, but also leading members of Congress, including the Senate. Retired Sergeant William McCulson in Jacksonville, Florida, left us this message. I'm wondering why we're paying so much attention to the atrocities in Ukraine which should be given attention, but the same atrocities that are happening in the Middle East, in Africa, in Asia, there isn't this much attention being given to it. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in a moment. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. We're discussing Russia's alleged war crimes in Ukraine and what prosecuting Russian leadership for those crimes could look like. I want to circle back to that message we heard um, from retired Sergeant William McCauslin in Jacksonville, Florida, who asked why Ukraine is getting attention and other places are being overlooked. And Alex, I I think it's important to note that the ICC has convicted 10 individuals for war crimes. All 10 were from African countries. But how have the alleged war crimes in Ukraine generated what 
to the sergeant's mind feels like a different response from the international community than atrocities and other conflicts? Sure. It's a, it is really a fair question. And, it, and, it, and it's actually a question that has kind of um, chased this project from the very beginning, from Nuremberg, uh, which was the first, you know, international prosecution for, for war crimes, crimes against humanity, and also the crime of aggression. And, um, and you know, then the uh, ac- accusations of one-sided justice. And then, you know, the project was reborn in the 1990s with the Yugoslavia Tribunal, the Rwanda Tribunal. And then and there, there have continued to be um, complaints, like we just heard. You know, fair, fair criticism that the the justice seems to be achieved in in pockets, in certain places, at certain times, and not in others. Um, and the, you know, I think the answer is that this is this is a relatively new project, the international accountability. It's an incomplete one, um, and it is um, it requires uh, political will. Um, to achieve achieve justice, to set up a tribunal, to uh, investigate and prosecute, and the pol- and sometimes the political will is there, and sometimes it's not. Uh, it doesn't neatly divide uh, uh, necessarily along certain lines. Um, you know, as you said, there was foc- the ICC is focused on crimes in Africa uh, and has sometimes been criticized for that. Um, there, there's been focus, um, at, you know, at times in Europe. Um, or, or in Latin America, um, and but until until universality is achieved, uh, you know, so for example, for the for the International Criminal Court, there this will likely always be a criticism. Um, what's happening in Ukraine is is unlike anything I've ever seen um, in terms of the energy and political will, um, and and there are a number of circumstances that that are that account for that. I think um, you know one of I think it is because it's in Europe, and also it's because it represents such a dramatic shifting and disruption of the world order to have Russia attacking Ukraine. Um, but the hope is that I, what I hope, and I think many in this business hope, is that this will you know remind people that this kind of energy, this kind of focus, should be paid to crimes that are committed in other conflicts. Well, the United Nations Security Council has set up special courts for prosecuting war crimes in the past, but Russia has veto power as a sitting member of the council and could block the formation of a tribunal. So, Alex, what court of law could be set up to try Russian leadership for alleged war crimes? So, the the, the in this case, the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction because uh, even though Ukraine is not a state party of the court, of the court, in 2015 it ceded jurisdiction to the court um, over crimes committed on its territory, and that jurisdiction grant is still in place. So, so the ICC is the foremost international body to be able to in- to investigate, and it it has investigators on the ground and support for that investigation, uh, both financial support. Um, seconded personnel, evidence, and so forth is pouring in. Um, Ukraine also has hundreds of investigators um, who are investigating the crimes. For the crime of aggression, um, that that crime does not the, the the ICC does not have jurisdiction over that crime um, in this case because of a particular jurisdictional requirement for that crime, um, and so there is. Um, serious discussion uh, about setting up a separate court just for the crime of aggression in this case. 
Um, As you said, it could not be done by the Security Council because Russia would, of course, veto that. So there's discussions about Ukraine entering into an agreement either with the European Union, with a number of of states uh, that are interested, or with the General Assembly of the United Nations to set up a a court like that that would be probably based on Ukraine's jurisdiction because it is a crime under Ukrainian law. We got this question from Arno who tweets, why is there no mention of how the U.S. could be sued over international crimes committed in Iraq and other places were they to join the International Criminal Court? And, and Diane, what we're talking about here are, are criminal prosecutions, not civil prosecutions. But to Arno's question, would the U.S. signing on to the ICC um, make them more vulnerable to those types of prosecutions or do they already fall under the ICC's jurisdiction? So one of the most important principles um, of the ICC's operation is that it's basically a court of last resort. So setting aside all other issues, um, even if it would otherwise have jurisdiction, it can't exercise it over people from a country that is already investigating and prosecuting them. And so for that reason, it's it's very important that the United States um, conduct independent investigations. The United States has claimed that it has done that for many of these crimes, um, but it hasn't been as forthcoming as many would like about in providing details about those. Uh, and so, so the basic answer is the United States could protect itself, if you want to put it that way, from ICC investigations by um, conducting fair uh, and rigorous investigations of its own personnel, which it has always claimed that it does. Jen, I need to sign off and go teach a class, but okay. if I could just make one point on the caller's question about selective justice, which, as Alex said, is a very important just uh, point and concern. I would just note that one of the things that's very striking about what's happening now is that for the first time in decades, there is serious conversation about holding uh, the leader of a major power, Russia, to account before an international tribunal. And that really flips the script that we're used to about former, I'm sorry, about um, great powers being immune from international justice. So we may see a shift in the dynamic that the caller um, raised a concern about. That's Diane Orentlicker, professor of international law at American University. Diane, thanks for taking time to speak with us. Thank you. Now, there's a historical precedent for sitting heads of state to be successfully prosecuted for war crimes. Here's David Crane. He's founding chief prosecutor of the Special Court for Sierra Leone. We've already done this before, and that's what I've been pushing and telling the UN and and various governments, is we've already done this before. We've already created a hybrid international war crimes tribunal in Sierra Leone, and we've already created it with a mandate of prosecuting the head of state for the very same crimes that we've been prosecuting Vladimir Putin for. But Russia, unlike Sierra Leone, is a nuclear-armed superpower. So, Alex, how does that change the dynamic? Well, what really changes the dynamic here is that Russia is not, as I said, the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction. It's doing its investigation. Um, It's receiving a a huge amount of support for that. Um, And, uh, but Russia is not a member of the court, uh, and therefore, th- therefore, if the ICC issues arrest warrants uh, for for mid-level commanders, for senior commanders, for, for Vladimir Putin himself, 
the only way that the court could arrest uh, one of those indictees is if uh, that person traveled to a country, and there are 123 countries in the Rome, in the ICC, traveled to one of those countries where he would be arrested, um, or if there were one day a change in government uh, in Russia um, and the new government surrendered the people who were charged. Now, both of those scenarios seem very unlikely in the moment, but I can say that both of those scenarios have have occurred in other situations, and senior people, Charles Taylor included, uh, but also Slobodan Milosevic, Radovan Karadzic, others, who never thought that they would see the inside of a courtroom in The Hague, uh, ended up here in The Hague. Um, and so it, it's, it's unlikely it can happen. And I also think there are strong reasons why the investigation itself and the bringing of charges, even before any arrests are made, um, are important for signaling to victims um, and also for sending signals to commanders and combatants alike uh, who are still fighting um, that they're being watched and, and that they could be charged by a court. That's Alex Whiting. He's the deputy prosecutor of the Kosovo Specialist Prosecutor's Office and a visiting professor of practice at Harvard Law School. Alex, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Today's producer was Chris Remington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.